What's new here is a foreign government basically being an owner of a sport in the United States. Not a team, not a player, but a sport. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. On June 7th, the Professional Golf Association, the PGA, announced a merger with a Saudi-backed rival league known as Live Golf. Saudi Arabia's public investment fund, which is controlled by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, backed the deal. The chairman of Saudi Arabia's public investment fund will serve as the chairman of this yet-to-be-named golf league. In other words, Saudi Arabia just bought the sport of professional golf. This move comes on the heels of other Saudi forays into professional sports, including the purchase of the Newcastle United Premier League team in 2021. Given Saudi Arabia's tarnished human rights record, the decision to purchase professional golf is a clear example of an attempt to rehabilitate its public image through sports, otherwise known as sports washing. Joining me to discuss this Saudi public diplomacy gambit is Alex Ward, national security reporter for Politico. We kick off discussing the lessons learned from Saudi Arabia's purchase of Newcastle United and then have a conversation about the PGA merger in the context of Saudi Arabia's politics and foreign policy. And a couple plugs before we start. Alex Ward anchors Politico's excellent daily newsletter, National Security Daily. And if newsletters are your thing, of course you should subscribe to Global Dispatches. You can do so by going to globaldispatches.substack.com. It's all free. Now here is my conversation with Alex Ward of Politico. Before we discuss the most recent news about the PGA, I wanted to go back to our previous conversation we had about Newcastle United. Uh, this is relevant to the conversation we're going to have today because 19 months ago, the very same Saudi public investment fund that now has a dominant position in professional golf also bought Newcastle United, the English Premier League soccer team. This was controversial at the time and like the PGA merger is understood to be part of a Saudi public diplomacy effort through, you know, quote unquote, sports wash. 
crashing. So I don't follow the Premier League, but my understanding is that Newcastle United was a perpetually mediocre team when it was bought by the Saudis. And one of my big takeaways from our conversation back then was a point you made that Saudi Arabia's decision to purchase Newcastle United as a public diplomacy tactic would succeed or fail largely on how Newcastle United does on the soccer field. So now with 19 months of hindsight into Saudi Arabia's first major foray into sports watching, what do we know about that dynamic? So one thing I would say is that Newcastle was actually quite a good team for a really, really long time. And then it went through a, a bit of a dry spell, bad management, et cetera. But the Saudis come in and then this season, which just ended, Newcastle ends up in fourth out of 20 teams, which allows them to go to the Champions League, which for those who aren't soccer inclined, means that they get to play in basically the best of the best annual tournament of European teams. So that's a huge deal. Massive deal. Not only does it lead to a lot more money, which of course it's the business at the end of the day, but it's a prestigious tournament in which really the best teams from each country get to participate in. More teams from better leagues get to go. It's why you'll see more Spanish and English teams than say, you know, Romanian teams. But the point is they went from kind of not being able to hand, play with the big boys to now being one of the big boys in a fairly short amount of time. I don't want to put that all on the Saudi investments, right? I mean, Newcastle did make some good hires, let's say, right? They bought good players, but this is also down to good coaching and, and, and management and a bunch of other things. But there's no denying the role that Saudi money played in being able to buy some of those players. So it's not all down to Saudis. They are certainly involved in Newcastle's very fast rise here. So, which is to say, right, there are other teams in the Premier League not owned by the Saudis, but owned by the Qataris or the Emiratis that are successful. So in terms of that public diplomacy, when you think of those teams in England or you think of sort of sports, you think, ah, the team that owns, you know, Manchester City or owns something else. Now, Saudi Arabia gets to be connected to the success of Newcastle United. So very quickly now, you could imagine that there are going to be fans of middling British teams will go, hey, the Saudis got a lot of money. Can they invest in my club too? And now the Saudi thing with like Khashoggi or human rights violations or anything like that isn't the first thing you think of. You think of them as possibly angel investors in a team that you love. And angel investors who are able to turn around the prospects of a team, which obviously is huge. I think it's been probably like decades since Newcastle United made the Champions League. This is all... I think, useful background for understanding this most recent Saudi gambit, purchasing a controlling stake in professional golf. I know you are a soccer fan, you follow soccer closely, but why do you suspect that the Saudi public investment fund made such a major investment in golf? And what's odd here, you know, it's not like they're buying a team, like purchasing Newcastle United, they are taking a controlling interest in an entire sport. Yeah, and that's what's so different here, right? I mean, if you're a casual sports fan, you probably have a general idea that you can have foreign investors of teams, right? Americans, for example, own a lot of teams in the Premier League, right? So you'll have American owners alongside Saudi and Emirati, whatever, owners of British clubs. What's new here is a foreign government basically being an owner of a sport in the United States, not a team, not a player, but a sport. So that's the really big sort of step back news here. Now, why golf? Well, one, my guess is it's probably the lowest barrier to entry, 
right? Golf is somewhat ripe for the picking. If you're the Saudis, you probably, in your heart of hearts, wish you could compete or be controlling owners in the NFL or Major League Baseball or, or something like that. But that requires just a lot of infrastructure, not least stadiums, right? With golf, you can just make deals with golf courses, right, that are already existing and they don't necessarily belong to a team. And so there's an infrastructure in place and an ease in which to move into the sport. Plus, you'd already created a league, the Live Golf League, which was doing fairly well in competing with the PGA and the two entities went at each other's throats in court with the PGA basically saying, you know, you couldn't take our players here, we have contracts, and Live Golf going after the PGA on antitrust charges saying, look, they can't be the only entity in American golf. And so the fact that they are merging now is probably a bit of a cave on the PGA's part. And I don't have inside information here, but my guess is you're the PGA and you're looking to go to court over this, or you are going to court over this, you know the deep pockets that the Saudis have. You know they could probably completely run you dry through a long court process. And so in this case, better to join them because you can't beat them. I don't think golf was probably their first choice, but it is a, a very good way in. Plus, lest we forget who owns a lot of golf courses, former President Donald Trump, who was a big booster or was a big booster and remains of Live Golf. And you could imagine will continue to do business with Trump family properties as part of this deal. And so there's a political connection here, too, that we can't ignore. You know, golf does have this reputation, I think actually unfairly so, as an elite sport. Does that have anything to do with it, that this is maybe the Saudis' attempt to ingratiate themselves with like the you know cigar-chomping, backroom-dealing kind of U.S. elite? I don't think we can discount that possibility. Who plays golf, as you mentioned? You know, politicians, captains of industry, etc., right? And it's usually sort of a sport for the powerful to make deals on the golf course. And so if you make a connection between business deals, Saudi political power, then yeah, that's really helpful for them. Again, I do think if the Saudis had their druthers, they would do a sport that mattered to everybody. So like a baseball or, or an NFL type thing. But this is pretty good too, right? You do have regular gen pop interested in golf, but at the end of the day, it is a sport that a lot of important people that will be of interest to Riyadh like to play. So how do you interpret these events in the context of Saudi Arabian politics and foreign policy right now? Like what are some of Saudi Arabia's key interests and goals that they are trying to pursue domestically and internationally? And how might taking over the sport of golf or also even like a team in the Premier League help to serve those goals? Well, I guess I want to be clear that the goal is even bigger than that. So let me take a step back, right? Saudi Arabia's reputation, or rather I should say their relationship with the United States for decades was pretty transactional on one thing. The United States would provide security guarantees to Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia would provide energy in the form of oil to the United States. Now, that relationship has started to change on two sort of tracks. One, the U.S. is able to produce a lot more of its energy, so it doesn't need Saudi Arabia as much. And then Saudi Arabia has many more customers it can sell to, so it doesn't need the United States as much. Add to that a reputation ding, and quite a big one, to Saudi Arabia after the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, where politicians from both sides of the aisle, plus the general population, started to be quite skeptical of Saudi Arabia. Now, this was a problem for Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia and de facto ruler, who, according to our own CIA, you know, orchestrated the Khashoggi murder. 
it's a problem for him because he is trying to rebrand Saudi Arabia. He's trying to make it this technology hub, this sports hub, this place that could bring in tons of foreign investment that people could see as sort of a modern nation and no longer a monarchy for which the 12th century is too soon. So the Khashoggi thing dinged that brand. So the best way to quickly you know, change the global conversation about Saudi Arabia was through sports, right? Soccer is a global sport. It reaches everybody. The Premier League is, I'm pretty sure, the most popular league in the entire world. I would assume Spain is probably a close second, but I think the Premier League in England is probably the most marketable at this point. And then you've got golf in the United States, which, of course, is a country that still needs some love. Republicans in the form of Donald Trump are still a fan of Saudi Arabia, but Joe Biden, of course, was more skeptical of Saudi Arabia, even though the U.S.-Saudi relationship has thought a bit under his leadership. But all this to say is that the Saudis have massive future plans, and MBS has massive future plans. He wants to create like a fully technological hub. He wants a city of the future. He wants people to see Saudi Arabia as a modern state. So it's not just the Premier League. It's not just golf. He's also looking to host the World Cup in 2030. He's hoping to host Olympics down the line and other major sports tournaments. So he's going to try to get to win hearts and minds through sports. That seems to be the early and often strategy. So, I mean, if I'm surveying U.S.-Saudi relations and I'm thinking of like the near-term future, the next few years of U.S.-Saudi relations, I mean, you have here a really pretty sour relationship between Biden and MBS. Like you were, I believe, with Biden when he visited Saudi Arabia, where you saw sort of firsthand the kind of cool relationship I, I think they two have. And there's been reporting recently even about how MBS wants to kind of put the screws to Biden on terms of energy production. So you have like a fraught relationship with the Democrat on the one hand. How might the purchase of the PGA or of professional golf in general sort of change that dynamic? <laughs> I don't think the Venn diagram between like golf fans and Democrats is pretty strong. I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of Democrats who, who play golf and like golf, but it's not necessarily a sport that's associated with the left. I would say, you know, I don't think golf is going to necessarily ingratiate Saudi Arabia more with this administration. This administration is already doing quite a bit to thaw the relations. You have Secretary of State Antony Blinken currently in Saudi Arabia, who met with MBS. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan was in the kingdom last month. And if you talk to the administration, they'll say, look, it's not just the oil relationship anymore. We're talking about 5G. We're talking about 6G. We're talking about making sure the Yemen war doesn't continue. We're talking about improvements in human rights. We're talking about all other kinds of deals here. The relationship has expanded beyond the narrowness of the most recent few decades. So, you know, do I think the Live Golf deal is going to like turbocharge some sort of moment of U.S. Saudi Arabia bonomy, I don't believe it will. It's sort of kind of going on its own. But you could imagine that over time, especially as fans come to you know like the new golf, if that is indeed what happens, and then Saudi Arabia does something down the line that, that an administration doesn't like, it could be harder for the administration to, or a future administration to, reprimand or sort of distance Washington from Riyadh because you'll have a public that's like, hey, those are good guys, right? I like my sport. 
I like what I'm seeing, you know, don't ruin this for me. It's more of a future play than it is a more near-term play. And, you know, in the future, I foresee like a potential point of friction between Republicans and the Saudis. On the one hand, of course, you have Donald Trump, who's very friendly with the Saudis, but the broader trajectory of Saudi foreign policy in the Middle East over the last several months has been one towards like, I don't know if rapprochement might be like too strong of a word, but a warming of relations with Iran, their, you know, longtime feared rival. You have like just a warming of relations between the two. And, and, and you see that manifested, for example, in bringing Assad out from the cold in Syria and trying to get him back into the fold in the Arab League. And of course, you have a number of members of like the Republican foreign policy establishment who are just like hardcore anti-Iran. So you do see potential in the future, like a point of, of friction. And I do wonder if efforts at public diplomacy like this are intended down the road to help soften those divides in a way. It's completely possible, though I think, you know, in, in that specific case, like the Iran rapprochement, Iran rapprochement, if you will, <laughs> it is true that Republicans and a lot of Democrats are not fans of Iran, and there's good reason for that. But what they probably want less or what they probably dislike more, as better said, is that there be sort of a conflict between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And so if the two get along to a certain extent, that minimizes the American role in the region, which seems to be a priority for both parties. But you're right. I mean, I think it, it's sort of important for Saudi to have greater investment in the United States because it keeps the U.S. tethered to the United States. And I think this is something that we need to think about a bit more because Let's recall that after the Khashoggi murder, you know, Trump got blasted for basically saying, why would I sever ties with the Saudis? They're pouring billions of dollars into the United States. Now, you know, he got absolutely hammered for that, but it was, in somewhat fairness to him, a pretty cold distillation of what the policy really is towards Saudi Arabia, which is as long as it gives us what we want, we're going to kind of keep a blind eye to what it does. So in this case, you could imagine the Saudis owning a golf league by investing more in the United States. It makes it just harder for any future administration to pull away from the relationship. And it gives the Saudis more leverage to dictate the way that relationship goes. Turning back to soccer, I know recently there was this potential that Lionel Messi, like the world's biggest soccer star, might play in a Saudi league, but it turns out he signed with the U.S. League in Miami. How do you interpret that? I'm still kind of surprised by this, but I'm an FC Barcelona fan. It's the team Messi started to play for and is most associated with. So I, I love the man, right? He's, he's the most important soccer player of my life and in many people's lives. But we need to note that he is a tourism ambassador for Saudi Arabia. So that is the deal that he had made. And it's expected that he's going to be one person who's going to try to help bring the World Cup to Saudi Arabia, I believe, in 2030. So it seemed only logical that he would go to the Saudi Pro League, considering just the enormous amount of money that they'd be willing to spend on him. I mean, Kareem Benzema, who's another player, just went over there to the tune of $430 million over two years. That's not just money. That's money. I think that's about what they spent on Newcastle United. Something along those lines. So, I mean, Messi was going to get something like that, if not more. My guess is he didn't go for a couple of reasons, but my guess is one, to not have his reputation tarnished a bit more. He's been getting a lot of criticism for his uh, Saudi tourism role. 
And two is also in Saudi Arabia is a guy named Cristiano Ronaldo and Messi's prime and Ronaldo's prime were when they, they both played for rival teams. And probably the last thing he wants is to sort of rekindle that rivalry at, at his age of 35. So then his options were to go back to FC Barcelona or to MLS and Barcelona's in the financial dire straits at this point. So that wasn't going to work out, which left him Major League Soccer and then Inter Miami, co-owned by David Beckham. We should note that while Messi's leaving a bunch of money on the table by not going to Saudi Arabia, he's getting an unprecedented deal by coming to the U.S. Not only will they lift salary caps for him only, (laughs) he's also going to get a cut of any new subscriber or something along these lines to Apple TV Plus because they own the rights to show all Major League Soccer or MLS games. He's also going to get some sort of cut between MLS and Adidas. He stands to still make a bunch of money. To bring it all back, it is a massive blow to Saudi Arabia's uh, sports watching efforts because to have Messi, Ronaldo, and Benzema, arguably three of the top five players of the last decade or so, you know, would have been a massive coup for them. So that was an example of a failed sports washing effort. And, you know, looking forward over the next couple years, like what sort of indicators will you look at to suggest to you whether Saudi Arabia's attempts to control professional golf will be a success or failure? I mean, let's see if you start having, you know, major sports stars being unwilling to criticize Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Think of it this way, with the NBA, right, LeBron James got hammered for being unwilling to criticize China because China is such a major market for the NBA. Mm-hmm. So you could imagine going forward that, you know, Saudi Arabia does something bad and a golf star will be asked about it and, and they won't say anything bad, in which case Saudi Arabia has effectively bought, if not compliments, just not getting hammered by prominent figures. So I think that would be the biggest sign. You could also see if you have sports stars start going to Saudi Arabia and saying, what a great place this is. You should come visit. It's so modern. It's so new. We were seeing that already with some other golf monarchies when the you know players or the coaches of the teams they own go over there and you know talk about just how great a time they're having there. It's a PR boost, right? So I think if you see you know, a lowering of criticism and a heightening of praise, that will show some pretty early PR wins. But I think, you know, the, one of the hardest pieces of evidence that we could see is, again, the Saudis do something bad and even politicians struggle to sort of distance from it. So I think all of these are sort of longer term plays, right? Saudi Arabia is playing the long game here. But I, I would imagine there will be some short term plays. Thank you so much for your time. This was great. Always happy to talk sports watching. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb, if you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, 
you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>